0: Well, it is a joy uh, to be in our church this morning. um, I guess the Lord just gave me this, but uh, for just a second, I could hear Bob uh, singing out loud and strong and his voice just as good as it maybe ever was, just for a second. (laughs) And, uh, And I thought, that's really sweet. As I looked at Callie... Standing here, I think, nine years old. So you've got almost ninety and nine and both singing to the Lord. Sweet, sweet. And I uh, you know, I think in a moment of transparency with you as a church family, I think that the Lord is at work here. And I think that our church is going to continue to get healthy and continue to grow. But Peggy and I sometimes talk about not forsaking the day of small beginnings because there are some things that you have when it's small that I think you lose ever increasingly as you get bigger. And a lot of that is just the the community and the relationships and the how personable a church can be when it's a little smaller. Not to say we don't want to grow. We do want to grow. But there are some really sweet things that I don't want to... Take for granted at this stage of where we are. Um, to that end, let me pray for us. Father, we, we do wish to honor you with a healthy church, a church that makes much of you, a church that sees you in your glory and speaks. Uh, highly and treasures you above all things. Father, we confess that we are mere creatures. I, for one, am humbled to speak your word to your people. I pray that you would forgive me. My sins are many. I pray that you would take your word and you would use it in the hearts and lives of your people, that you'd build up your church through. The teaching and understanding and application of your word. If there would be those here that do not know you, I pray your word would pierce. Like it says, a double-edged sword able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May you do that. Father, we offer back to, uh, to you, our offering of worship this morning as we listen, as we engage over your word, as we interact with one another, I pray it would be a pleasing aroma to you. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of my sermon this morning <clears throat> is The Deep, Satisfying, and God-Glorifying Life of humility, the deep satisfying and God-glorifying life of humility. But I'll tell you up front, this sermon is going to be like when I was a child. Every now and then, I would be able to convince my, actually it was my stepmother, to buy me Captain Crunch, which was my favorite. And I loved Captain Crunch. And, but the thing that I also knew about it back then in the whatever that was, 80-somethings, Maybe it was 70s-somethings. I guess it was the 70s. Is there would be a prize in the Cap'n Crunch. So you didn't just get the Cap'n Crunch. You also got the prize. And I might even dig through the whole box of Cap'n Crunch to get the prize before one of my other siblings took my prize. And, uh, but today, you're going to get two things. You're going to kind of get the Cap'n Crunch. And then you're going to get the prize. And I want you to know the Cap'n Crunch is coming first. And the prize shall follow about midway through. So, look with me again at John 13. Beginning in John 13, John the author is moving us away from the public ministry of Jesus to more of a private ministry to his disciples. And this trend from John 13 all the way through John 18, where Jesus is taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane, is kind of this inner sanctuary of the Scriptures. It's it's a more private look behind the curtains, if you will, of the ministry of Jesus with His disciples and to the Father. It's one of the most unique and maybe precious parts of the Scripture. As you get a look behind the curtain. The feast of the Passover is where the passage starts there in verse 1 of chapter 13. We know from, you know, historically, it was an annual Jewish festival commemorating God's work to set free the the children of Israel from Egypt. The name, uh, the Passover is derived from, there was God sent, if you read in Exodus, an angel of death that came over the land, it was the last of the plagues, and it would kill the firstborn of every Egyptian. The whole idea was to force their hand to set Israel free. And so, this angel of death comes and he takes every firstborn male, child, and animal, and It forces Pharaoh to come back to Moses and say, please get out of here before more disaster comes. And so for now, now, and when we get to the place in our text, for almost 1,500 years, the Jews have been having this feast as a memorial to what God had done. But what's fascinating about that is for 1,500 years, this has been going on, but what we're reading is the last one of its kind. This would be the last Passover feast where they were celebrating the Lamb's blood over the doorpost, and now it would be the true blood of the Messiah himself. And we move from the Passover feast to the Lord's Supper in our text today. It's an interesting part of the text. What we see pretty quickly... In our text in John 1, is it says, Jesus knew the hour had come. Jesus knew the hour had come. In other words, it was time. He had come to earth to go to the cross to pay the penalty for his people's sin, and Jesus knew that hour had come. It hadn't come exactly in that moment. It was to come in the next hours, but he knew ahead of time because he's God. And then in verse 3, it says that basically Satan had worked in the heart of Judas, and he was to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that in verse 3. And then also in verse 3, it says Jesus knew where he had come from beside the Father, and he knew where he was going. He was going back to be with the Father. My point in highlighting that is this. Jesus was God, and He and the Father had a sovereign working plan for salvation, and here's the thing, in this world, it's important that you know this as a child of God, and that I know this. There is a hidden sovereignty, a hidden providence that is working behind the scenes of everything that we see with our eyes. Jesus knew his hour had come. Jesus knew Judas would betray him. Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going. And not only is that sovereignty at work, but it's at work, and this is the important part, even in his death, a horrible thing, the the most horrible murder in the history of mankind. But you took the most innocent person in all the world and you kill him for somebody else's sins. It's a heinous heinous thing. But do we not see hard things happen in our lives? Very hard things. You may be in the middle of some of them. What I'm saying to you is there is hope for the believer. Romans 8:28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Even in the death of Christ on the cross, there was a sovereign, hidden plan, hidden to us, but not to the the Trinity, working out the salvation of man. So, God is at work. But then if you look at verse 1, it says, look with me there in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, now therefore the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to be with the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his own out of the world and he loved them to the end. The question that I ask in my study is what does that mean? He loved them to the end like when he got crucified? He loved them to the end of eternity because there's no end to eternity. So how does that work? You know, he loved them to the end of eternity. Well, eternity by nature doesn't end. So what is this passage, what is it saying? The Greek word here is a word, I'm sure I'll say it just like a Greek would, talos, talos. It means perfection or completion. He loved them to perfection. He loved them to completion. In other words, there was nothing going to be left undone with his people. When he went to the cross, he would have loved them to the end, perfectly to completion. And so, but it's interesting, right there in the next verse, if you read that with me too, verse 2. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Satan is already at work, and there is this satanic rejection of God's love, and Judas is the recipient of that. There is this rejection of God's love that Satan is at work in the heart of a person named Judas. And it's so interesting to me. I would have thought when I read this text again this week, Jesus washed the 11 disciples' feet. And then he tells them, I did this as an example. You know what's wrong with that? He washed all 12. He washed all their feet. And I'm like, why did he wash the traitor's feet? It just said in chapter, in verse 2, he knew he was going to betray him. And yet, he still washes Judas's feet. I think the answer is found in Matthew 5.44. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know about y'all, but that is one of the hardest commandments for me to obey. I feel like, you know, even even out there in road rage world, I want to go snatch him out of his car and beat the man to a pulp. I mean, in my flesh, that's the way I feel. And, and Lord, help me if he tells me I'm number one. You know how they do that. It ain't with this finger. I just take that as he thinks I'm number one, you know. And I have to convince myself that's probably what he's saying. I have the hardest time. I can love you if you're lovable. But when you're my enemy, when I know privately behind my back you're talking about me in a way that is less than honorable, it's hard to love you. But you know what I think is happening in our text? Jesus is modeling not just humility, but even this. And he's saying, I think, in our text, that if we can't do this, Satan's going to harden our hearts. Satan's going to enter in, and he's going to harden our hearts, and we're not going to be able to experience the love of Christ and our hearts will become cold. Unlike the other disciples, Judas was not touched by this act of foot washing. His heart was hardened by greed and ambition. Greed it seems opened the door for Satan to enter into Judas's heart. Now, look with me at John 13:3. There's another phrase here that's interesting. It says, "Jesus Knowing that the Father had given all things, given all things, into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God. I'm in my study asking the question, all right, so what was the Father giving? It says all things into his hands. What were all things? The Father was giving all things. In the context... I think the point in this little piece of the scripture is the emphasis on Jesus being high and supreme, having all power. The Father had given him everything. Because the reason I think that's the point is. What happens is the father gives him all things. He's he's from the father. He's going back to the father. He's the most valuable person to ever walk the face of the earth. And what is he about to do? He's about to put on a towel around his waist and get on his knees. And he is about to go to the lowest place and clean these guys' feet. So the point he's trying to make is the Father's given him all things. He's supreme. He's all-powerful. And yet he's going to go lower than anybody would have dared gone in the room. And matter of fact, Peter's like, don't do that. And Peggy and I are watching the Victoria thing with uh, PBS. And, and there's this scene in there where it's like, they don't want her to be a normal person. They want her to be a majestic queen. And these pictures get out of her kind of caring for her child, and she's all upset. They're not going to see me as a queen. That's what Peter's feeling like. They're not going to see you as the high and lifted up, the majestic. And Jesus says, man, you're missing it, Peter. You're missing it. I'm going to show you with my example here. Foot washing is culturally, culturally not relevant to us today. And quite frankly, I get the willies just thinking about it. You know, some of y'all's toenails and foot, and it's like, ugh. We wear shoes, and we walk on paved roads, and we travel in vehicles. In the day of Jesus, when there was a festival, they would bathe. It was customary. They would bathe their whole bodies and get clean. And then they would walk because you had to. You couldn't jump in your Honda and go over to the festival, you would walk on a dirty road in your sandals, and by the time they arrived, their feet would be dirty. Now, the rest of their body was still clean. they just bathed. So the servant, whoever that servant was in the home, their job was to come and get a basin and wash your feet. Because remember I told you, they didn't sit at tables like we do, upright tables with high back chairs. They're down on the ground kind of with their feet back leaning on an arm. That's how John was able to relax in Jesus' chest. So the cultural picture of the Lord's Supper is really just a picture that... uh, Got everybody's face in there, kind of like a Polaroid. But anyhow, it really contextually happened. So it was important. <clears throat> it's important to get your feet clean. So look why, look why Jesus says he did what he did in this passage. We're still at the Cap'n Crunch section. We're not at the prize. But here it is. <clears throat> John 13, 14 through 16. It says, If I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. So why am I doing this? I'm giving you an example. That you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is saying, yes, the Father has given me all things. I am the supreme being of the universe, but watch me. I'm about to go low, and I'm about to be really humble, and you're supposed to be that way. But you know what? What I have learned in my experience in this life is that leadership and being the man or the woman— Means you have a lot of subordinates, you have a lot of responsibility, all these people are your do boys and do girls, they do whatever you ask them to do, and you're looked at as the exalted one. Jesus is trying to say, man, this world has got it backwards. If you want to be great, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great, it's our definition of greatness. Greatness is being a servant to all. And so he models it for them. More is caught than taught. Greatness in the kingdom is better defined by a willingness to clean another man's shoes than to fill them. Greatness in the kingdom is better defined by a willingness to clean another man's shoes than to fill them. Remember, the disciples just before all this happened in a parallel gospel, they're arguing over... Who is the greatest? Look, look with me if you want in your Bibles at Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. It is up there on the screens, but <clears throat> it says a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus is speaking. He says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But then he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. He's right-sizing a wrong view of leadership in our world. And then I love, uh, you know, the opposite of humility is pride. And C.S. Lewis says it probably as good as anybody. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than you. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Like, if, if I don't know that your house is a whole lot nicer than my house, I'm probably content with my house. But then the truth is, sometimes I might go to your house, and because it is a lot nicer than my house, perhaps, in this illustration, I might leave kind of in my mind going, I wish I had that. You see, if I don't know that, there's no competition. Same, same way with cars. Same way with gifts and talents, abilities, skills. We compare. We're always comparing. But you see, pride is the defining sin of humanity. And it's the source of all other sins. Pride is what got us into the fall. And pride continues. All temptations are based upon self gratification, which is an expression of pride or self love. Jesus is saying, guys, guys, it's about humility, it's about service. You want to be great. Go serve. We can all do that. That's the beauty of it, you know? It's like, I don't have to be the most gifted one in the room to go serve somebody. We can all do that. And I think God did it that way on on purpose. The kingdom truth is to be great, you must be a servant of all. And then over earlier in John 12, it says, what? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... You know what Jesus, what God's telling, I mean, Jesus is telling the disciples? He's telling them, listen, guys, you want to be great? Go find a place to die. Where can you die? I can die right here. I can die giving myself to First Baptist Chattahoochee in this community. I can die to my own desires. I can die to my own will. I can die right here. I don't have to go anywhere else to die. What about you? The idea is blossom where you're planted. Die where you are. Die to your life. Hate your life in this world that you can bear much fruit to his glory. You can die right where you are. So, to finish the Cap'n Crunch part, the most straightforward point of this whole story in John 13, 1 through 20 is Jesus is giving his disciples a calling as his representatives. If you read verse 20, it says, whoever receives the one I send receives me. In other words, Jesus is making them his representative. And to be fit for this high calling, to be ready for this high calling, you got to be the kind of person who gladly, and that's the key word, gladly... Goes low in service, not high, but seeks to go low in service. And the reason I say gladly is because in verse 17, you know these things, bless if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And the word blessed means joyful, happy. It's basically saying, you want to be happy? And I know the answer for all of us is Yeah. I want to be happy. Jesus is saying true happiness is found down here in serving, not up here in getting people to look at you like you're somebody great. We we all know, intuitively we know, especially when we start having kids, at Christmas now, I don't get all giddy about what I'm going to get because I'm probably just going to get a tie. And if I'm lucky, a pair of socks, you know, at this stage in the game. But what I do get excited about when I have a little extra money is buying something nice for my children. And the thought of them opening that gift is sweet to me. And it brings joy to me. Giving, not receiving, is where the joy is. Even in life, you'll find that the deepest joys in life are not when people are hailing you in status, but when they are helped by you in service. That's where the greatest joy is. Here's the prize. We just finished the Cap'n Crunch. hope you enjoyed it. The prize. There's a separate, I think, and more substantial meaning in our text. There, that, what we, everything we said, I think, is true, but I think there is a separate and more substantial meaning, and I skipped John 13, 6 through 11 for this reason, because I think in John 6, 13, 6 through 11 is where the more substantial teaching lie. All right, look with me at that text. He came to Simon Peter, this is John 13, 6 through 11, who said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. So even Peter didn't understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. It's kind of like, you're royalty. You should not wash my feet. And he says, Jesus says to him, If I do not wash you, you have nothing to share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash. Remember, I said they take a bath before they go to the ceremony. Or the, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he says, And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. So the 11 have somehow been cleaned. Peter says to Jesus, you shall never wash me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, in other words, another way to say it would be, you'll not enter into my kingdom if you're not clean. You will, you will not be clean before the Father if I do not clean you. Peter still doesn't get it. Sometimes I feel like I'm Peter, kind of thick-headed, perhaps, maybe just zealous, you know. But Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And I got to believe at that moment, Jesus kind of chuckles under his breath like, you really are kind of (laughs) slow. Jesus said, the one is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean. And you are clean. So what he's saying here is a 10-cent word. And Jesus is saying, when, I, when you're bathed, it's like being justified. And by being justified, don't let the word throw you. You could think of it like this. It's just as if you never sinned. That's one way to think about it. You're justified, just as if you never sinned. You're made right. You're clean. You're bathed. Now, a more technical definition for it, in in, uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which I encourage all of you to buy and read, it's a reference book, but it's very helpful, he says justification is this, an instantaneous legal act of God in which, one... He thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So justification, it's like we go through our life like when I started dating Peggy. We weren't married. We started dating. I knew I liked her. I met with her at the gyro in Carrollton and said, I'm crazy about you. We're still not married. But we get all the way over here to July 24th 1993, and I said, I do. And she said, I don't. No, (laughs) she said, I do. And we got married. And at that point, we're married, right? Justification in the spiritual sense, God may be bringing us along, wooing us to himself, but at some point in time, he justifies us. He makes us legally Right before him, he takes away our sins. He covers our sins with the blood of Christ. That's justification. Another way to say it is this way. I've got an illustration for you. And I need to read it so I get it right. There were two university men who were great friends. They graduated together, went out into the world to make their names. One was called to the bar while the other entered into business. Both were considerably successful. One rose to become an eminent judge over time, while the other amassed a, a fortune by which he was constantly dealing with the stock exchange. Unfortunately, a black day came for the businessman, and he lost everything in one day. Then in an effort to regain his old position of influence, he embezzled a large sum of money. When the situation came to light, and he found himself in the hands of the law with no defense. He pleaded guilty and he hoped for clemency from the judge. It happened that the judge appointed for the case was the embezzler's old friend. From his college days, whom he had not seen in years. As soon as they entered the court, each man recognized the other, and it was not long before the public became aware of the situation. This led to speculation. Would the case be dealt with leniency? Would the offense be minimized because of their friendship? Or would the judge overreact, perhaps, to the public's knowledge and give a more severe judgment. The case was heard in detail by detail in all of its ugliness. And when time came for the summing up and passing of judgment, the court was at a high pitch of excitement, wondering how the the fascinating drama would conclude. The judge summed up clearly, making no attempt to hide the darkest shadows of the picture, nor to exaggerate its lesser ones. But when he came to pronounce a sentence, an audible gasp around the court, for it was the heaviest the law could impose. Was it possible that this was it? Was there not going to be any mercy? Then something happened which those who saw it still remember with a quickened breath. Many did not know it was happening at all. So unexpected was this last act. The prisoner was about to be led away and everyone was leaving the courtroom with the judge. The judge removed his robe, descended into the court, and made his way over to the top where the prisoner was moving off with the jailers. Those who were nearest heard what was said when they met. They said that the judge, not without emotion, looked at his old friend, held out his hand, shook his hand, leaned over, and into his ear he said this. I will pay that debt for you. And before anything could be said, the judge left the courtroom, and he did indeed pay the man's debt as a result. It almost ruined the judge financially. The illustration is what justification is. The truth is, we are the embezzlers. The truth is, we lost it all. But Jesus pays it all. And then we get it all. Now, the Scriptures are very clear that our response must be, we must believe in Jesus and trust that He indeed is the Messiah. He is God and that He did pay the penalty on the cross for our sins. And then when we understand justification that we were sentenced to a payment we could never pay like that guy in the courtroom, the embezzler. Could you imagine when the sentence came down how heavy it would have been as he contemplated his whole life is lost. He will be in prison for the rest of his days if not found guilty and murdered for his sins. That is it for us in a spiritual sense. We are are hopeless without God. Without Christ paying the penalty for our sins and justifying us and making us right, there's no hope for us. No hope for us. And so, you might say, sitting there, (laughs) I'm not an embezzler, Clint. You might say, my sin, I mean, come on, really. I mean, the worst thing I've done that I can remember is when I was 13, my mom wouldn't buy me a lollipop and I stole it while we were in the checkout line. That's all I've really ever done. Am I going to be sentenced to eternal damnation for my little bitty sins? I could see it if I were Hitler or even this embezzler. But look with me, Jesus raises the bar on what it means to be a sinner. In Matthew 5:21 through 22, he says, "You have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder." I bet you there's nobody in here that's ever murdered anybody, and if you had, I'm scared of you. But he says, "You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment." That was the Old Testament. But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So now the bar just went from murder to even just being angry. And the fact is, I've already confessed in this sermon how angry I am when I'm driving sometimes, so you know I need Christ. And I'd be willing to bet you've been angry too. And then in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, it says, you've heard it said, this is the Old Testament again, you should not commit adultery. But Jesus raises the bar again. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And so the bar, none of us, none of us, we all are guilty of sin. We need to be justified and made right with God. Only Christ can do that through faith and repentance. Faith in him and repenting. Now, what's this thing about washing the feet and you don't have to be bathed? What, what Jesus is saying with this is he's saying, You already took a bath if you've been justified. That's a one-time thing. It's like the marriage. We're dating, we're dating, we're dating. Finally, Peggy and I stand there, and we both say I do. We're married. When you become a Christian, you may have been going to church and learning things, but at some point, you trust Christ, and you repent of your sins. He comes into your life. There's justification. But in our text, the reason... There's the continual washing of the feet is this idea of sanctification. We're not just justified, but we need to be made like Christ. We need to become more in his image. So we need our feet continually washed by him. And that's what he's saying in our text is there's this continual washing washing of the feet, not the whole body. You've been justified. You've been made right. And so you need to be sanctified. Our sin, even after we become a Christian, breaks our fellowship with God. And this is important to get. Our sin breaks our fellowship with God, not our relationship with God. If I truly am a Christian, there is nothing I can do to lose that. But if I'm truly a Christian, God has come into my life and into my heart in such a way that I don't want to go on living in sin. I don't want to go on saying, oh, big deal, you know, God says you do that, but I don't have to do that. I'm already a Christian. No, that would tell me you may not understand justification. There's this desire to be right with him. And because I came from a father that I had a great relationship with, I'll use that illustration. I could not stand it when I knew my father was upset with me. I couldn't stand it. I could not live in that state for any length of time. I cherished him and I cherished what he thought of me. And I think a true believer is that way, that we can't go on living in sin. And so what would happen is I'd go to my father, and I'd say, Dad, I know you told me to do this, but I remember one time we had a huge party when he was out of town. I was in, an, in high school, and everything went wrong. I mean, people, lampshades got broken. I'm not telling you the whole story. But I'd set my dad down after we cleaned up everything, and he couldn't tell. And I just said, Dad, we had this big party when you were out of town. And he said, tell me something I don't know. And I confessed it. He forgave me. And it restored our fellowship. That's very similar as a Christian. Confessing that sin, restoring that relationship. We need our feet continually washed. But you don't need to keep taking baths. If you've been saved, if you've been justified, you are justified. So, here's the question. Do you know the saving love of God in justification? Have you ever personally experienced the judge taking off his robe and coming down and finding you and saying, I'll pay your debt? Is that you? Do you know that love of the Father? If not, I pray today would be the day of salvation. The other part of this is, maybe you are a Christian, but there is this broken fellowship. There's something that you're holding on to that is keeping you at a a guilty distance from your Father. Will you make that right with Him? Will you ask him to forgive you and restore that fellowship, that sweet, sweet fellowship with God? And remember, some of the standards are just really, really challenging. Are you angry with somebody and you just can't let that go? Are you praying for your enemy? That's hard. There's some hard stuff there. I ask you today, either come to Christ through justification or come to him with your sin and make your fellowship sweet again. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for the model of humility in Christ and also for the way it speaks to us about the gospel and sanctification and being made right. Would you work in our hearts to that end, I pray in Jesus' name.